I love scotch. 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 Yep. Have another whiskey. If you'd like to speak to me in person, press one. If you'd like to order drugs, press hash. <laughs> I had a gentleman in the crowd that was like, tell me how to drink Glenfiddich. And I was like, I will not do that. Yep. You drink Glenfiddich how you want to drink Glenfiddich. Wear a cowboy hat in Los Angeles and look at the amount of looks you get. Yeah. It's unbelievable. This is the most flamboyant city on earth. You wear a cowboy hat, people look at you like you are yep. like an alien. The Beatles came on and they might pick me up on his shoulder. George Harrison is as close to me as that wall now. I went, all right, George, all right. And he went, cock. <laughs> and that was the closest <laughs> I ever came to the Beatles. <laughs> have a whiskey while we- Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheers, Cheers. Welcome back to United States of Dramerica, and this is going to be a fun episode. I'm delighted to have on the famous and brilliant writer of The Maze Runner. Welcome to the show, Grant Pierce Myers. Th thank you very much for having me, and it's very generous to call me both uh, famous and brilliant, but I'll take it. So this is exciting because this isn't a crossover episode as such, but you are the first person who is going to appear on both this podcast, United States of America, about whiskey, but you were also recently on my other podcast, Screaming Into the Hollywood Abyss, which was all about rejection in Hollywood. So I don't want to do the rejection in Hollywood stuff. I want to do the fun stuff. Plus, we're not held back by a terrible co-host as we were <laughs> on the other podcast. So let's start off with a really simple one, because with some guests... It's halfway through the podcast before we start drinking the whiskey, but you're on here invited because you wanted to drink whiskey on the podcast that doesn't even have whiskey drinking as part of it. So you're ahead of me. Grant, what are you drinking? Uh, I am drinking uh, North Coast Rye from the Traverse City Whiskey Company. Um, I am currently up in northern Michigan, and uh, this is I spend a lot of time up here. It's where my family is. And I have fallen in love with this distillery. And so they, I mean, they ship all over the country, but when I'm up here, it's almost the only thing I drink. Um, and now I've got like a legitimate excuse to have, you know, a couple extra tonight. Absolutely. Not that you, you need an excuse during a, during a pandemic. So you, yeah. you posted a picture the other day. They've, they've got like a whole range of, of whiskeys, haven't they? So they've got rye and other things. They, yeah, they've got rye, they've got bourbon, they've got some whiskeys. Um, the one that is just really fun and really dangerous is they have a cherry-infused whiskey. They Because up here, Traverse City is the, is the cherry capital of the world. So they throw a bunch of cherries, I think it's 20 pounds of cherries in to each batch. And it, this stuff comes out tasting so sweet and cherry-like uh, that you can easily drink a whole bottle before you realize how much trouble you're in. Um, it's it's wonderful stuff. So I think if if this was a sort of whiskey podcast, which is actually about whiskey, I don't know where the connoisseurs sit on all of this sort of stuff. But for me, I rather like these sweeter ones. So I I discovered one of my twenty twenty discoveries was a banana flavored bourbon. Really? Is, yeah, it's called Howlerhead, and weirdly Dana White from the UFC is now partnered involved in it, and so you'll start seeing all sorts of UFC fighters with this monkey logoed banana flavor whiskey. But anyway, it's, it's actually a lovely whiskey. So when I saw the selection you posted, I quite, 
I saw the cherry one and thought, you know, I probably should start with the grown-up whiskey, but I feel like I'd <laughs> want to be on the cherry one quite quickly. Uh, so I kind of famously amongst my friends and family have the palate of a sorority girl. Um, if, if it has, I mean, I mean, if it has pineapple, banana sweetness, I'm all over it. And even when I try to order like a man, um, the joke in our family is that I'm going to end up getting something that looks like a tiki drink. I mean, if there's a drink on the menu called, you know, man hit other man with rock and I order it, it's going to show up, it's going to be pink and it's going to have a flamingo in it. Um, and I've just learned to embrace that. And so, yeah, every once in a while, I, I just have to break into, you know, the sweet stuff like the cherry whiskey. And, and <laughs> so it's interesting because I drink, I guess, what you would call quite grown up normal whiskey drinks. So it's not about necessarily men or women, but just sort of, I guess, sophisticated palate. Yes. Heavy peated scotch. And the whiskey I'm about to open up in a second is very much in that category. But there is a part of me that loves these sweet drinks. I remember I went, I went through a phase in my early 20s where one night I'd be out drinking sort of, you know, a good Macallan. And the next night I'd have a Malibu and pineapple. And I, I, I'm not a dessert person, but I do like sweet drinks. This is the real ironic thing about my palate, too, is when it comes to scotch, I want the peatiest, smokiest scotch you can find. Hmm. Um, and, and that just makes me happy and as opposed to, you know, what I'm what I'm looking for, like you said, the Malibu and pineapple. Yeah, interesting. Right now for my whiskey. So one of the things I pride myself on on this podcast is is selecting a whiskey appropriate for the guest. So when I was planning this, I sat down and I thought, right, is there a, do I have a whiskey that's made with maize for maize runner? And I thought, no, I don't have any. And then I started thinking, right, okay. So the lead character was called Thomas. You know, do I, do I find one with Thomas in the name? And then I started, I couldn't find one. I thought, well, the British guy who was in, who was salmon about a boy ended up being a grown up in that movie. Is there something around that? Anyway, after extensive research, do I, you know, do I drink Myers rum um, for your last name? In the end, I thought, you know what? I've got the perfect one, which is lazy, but your first name is Grant. There is a company called William Grant. They make amazing whiskies. So I've decided I'll treat myself and have a Balvenie because that's made by William Grant. And because it's 2021, I'm having a Balvenie 21. So no matter That is my... You chose correctly because that is my absolute favorite scotch. Is that right? It, that, so a, a wonderful segue. Um, there was a time when I would buy myself a nice bottle of something if something good happened in my career. And I always wanted to buy myself a bottle of the Portwood Balvenie. And I had to wait and wait and wait till I finally had a big enough success where I could go to the liquor store and point to that very top shelf and say, that's the one I want. Interesting. So well, I'm glad that my choosing a lazy whiskey based on your first name has ended up being the right choice. So anyway, cheers. Cheers. Uh, to you. So that's interesting. So you, I learned this on the other podcast, but when you have a success of some kind, you buy your wife a piece of jewelry which I think is a, a lovely story. And I came away thinking, wow, what a great husband. But actually, you've now admitted you also buy yourself something as well. I, well, I mean, every every screenwriter needs to have a bottle at the ready, just given the ups and downs of our business. But, it, you know, it, it really, it was an excuse for me to try new things. Um, because, you know, uh, 
again, m- money is so bizarre in our business. You get paid in weird ways and you don't want to buy a car when something goes right, because that could quickly land you in a, in a bad place. But, you know, going and buying yourself, I mean, not in the case of the, 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 the Portwood uh, Balvenie, but going and buying yourself a new bottle of whiskey or, or something for about 40 bucks was a good way to treat myself and also expand my horizons. Oh, it's interesting. So I've started something similar this year. So I had a load of New Year's resolutions in 2020, and none of which came to pass. And so I mean, some of them were like, you know, I tried to lose weight, which I actually did until between January and March. But I had some other weird ones, which aren't necessarily, wouldn't be seen as normally like good things. But one of them was to gamble more and in different places, for example, was one of my 2020 ones. Like I wanted to go to different casinos rather than just only, so like when I was in Texas, find a casino there rather than just going to sort of Vegas. So, you know, I had, I had these great healthy ambitions and none of them came to pass. And for 2021, I was thinking, well, what can I do bearing in mind that probably I can't leave my house for at least Q1 and probably who knows what the year looks like. And I thought I would treat myself to whiskeys because I get, fortunately in this game, as a podcaster, I get given a few things, I'll be honest, um, which I'm not uncomfortable with. But when I have wins of some kind, I will treat myself as well. And it's a strange win, but I had some success with, with cryptocurrency over the Christmas period with some buying various bits and pieces at prices that ended up going quite high quite quickly. And I decided that I'd start the year. So I treated myself to a bottle of Johnny Walker Blue, a particularly successful day I had on cryptocurrency. So it's not quite as exciting as selling a script to Warner Brothers or, or Paramount in the way that you treat yourself. But, I'll, you know, I'll take it. It's the only win I can see myself having for a while. You know, as I'm sitting here listening to you talk about, you know, oh, I'm going to gamble in different locations and cryptocurrency. All I'm thinking is, God, my day job is boring compared to to, compared to Dan. I mean, (laughs) like that sounds so exotic to me. I don't like I don't leave my house like I do my job in my house. It's 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 a big day if someone says hey, I want you to meet me for lunch somewhere. I'm like, holy smokes, I'm actually going to go have a meal with someone. Or at least, you know, used to. But yeah, maybe I should be interviewing you. I don't think that's the case. Now, look, let's talk about Maze Runner. So when when you were on the last podcast, I pretended I'd seen Maze Runner because I think that was the professional thing to do. But I actually hadn't seen it. So I watched it last night ahead of today's podcast. It's actually very good. Um not, not that I doubted your success as a writer, but I just I felt I should at least watch it. So when you started your career and you thought, right, I want to be a writer, to end up with a movie, which was a something like $30 million movie, which grossed something like $384 million and was a huge success, has you know amazing actors in it and has become... Obviously, I know it's based off the book, but it's, you know, a cultural reference point. Lots, everyone's heard of the movie. I think I might have been one of the few people not to have seen it until seven o'clock last night. How does that feel to know that that was you and you were part of that and that's a success that you've had? It's pretty intoxicating. Um, you know, there's there's no motivation for me to ever try a hard drug because the high won't match what it felt like having that movie get made and then watching how successful it was. Um, actually the moment I really knew that it was something I was watching South park and they made a joke at maze runners expense. And I was like, Holy shit, I've made it like South park took a shot at me. 
I mean, not me personally, but the project. Um, yeah, it's it, it it's hard not to get really cocky and get a big head about it because, like you said, it's something that gets out there in culture, and it doesn't leave. You know, I mean, the movie's been out for seven years or so, and and it's it's not like it's uh, a hot topic of conversation. But when I meet people and we're just talking about, oh, what do you do? What do I do? I'll say I wrote Maze Runner, and they go, oh, my God, I love that movie. Mm. Uh, and often I get that response from people who, in a million years, I would never imagine they're watching a, a young adult science fiction movie. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, like, my parents have the poster hanging in their house. I've got a poster hanging in my house. Um, it, it doesn't go away, and it's really wonderful. So your, your parents have one in the house. As you know, it's it's the right thing to do. It's what every proud parent should do. But presumably, when when their friends come round for bingo or bridge or whatever it is that they did before the before the pandemic, and they didn't know, maybe they don't know them that well, maybe, and didn't know that they had a son as a writer. That must be quite an odd thing to be having in the living room, presumably. It, so half their friends know what I do, and half their friends don't, hmm. and the ones who don't show up and are very confused because it it is so starkly out of context. It, 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 it's, there's really no way to describe what that poster looks like in the living room of, of a couple 70 year olds. It's just odd. Um, what's funny is, so my parents are up in this small town in Northern Michigan. And when the movie came out, uh, they actually went to the local theater I mean, our local theater is a one screen theater uh, and they talked to the, the people that own it and they put together a special screening where I, I guess they kind of rented out the theater and invited everyone they knew up here. And they, you know, they took them all to see the Maze Runner and on the marquee outside the theater, they had screenwriter Grant Pierce Myers. Um, and, and I've got this photo of them and all their friends. And again, it's, it's 50 people who in a, in a million years would never have gone to see this movie. Um, it's, it's just a wonderful photo. So when the studio were going through the sort of the accounts and the statistics afterwards, and, you know, presumably doing the usual thing, but like, well, you know, in the 18 to 24 bracket, you know, we the percentage of penetration was this and the 13 to 18 year olds. And, so on. and then in Northern Michigan, the average age of the viewing was 73. That's yeah. There's a weird, there's a weird spike that nobody in the marketing department at Fox could understand. Wow, that's extraordinary. Yeah, because that's the thing is, I think for people, you know, I live in LA. I'm close enough to this world, and I know a few people who do bits and pieces that, you know, I sort of see bits of this. You know, I I watch a movie and I'll see that my friends in it, or I'll go to a premiere, like you know, in the days before all this stopped. But for those who have nothing to do with the industry, it's such a fascinating and exciting world. So for presumably for the people of Northern Michigan in your parents' town, the fact that, you know, somebody's son wrote this thing must have been, you know, local paper worthy news. I don't think we made the local paper. All I, the thing I really remember is that all their friends came out and were very polite and said they liked it. And then immediately asked a million questions because they didn't understand parts of it. Yeah. <laughs> and then, my response to my parents was a welcome to the hellish part of my job. Um, because inevitably when you tell someone you wrote something, they're going to pick out the thing they didn't like or the thing they didn't get and want to grill you about it. So when we did a whole podcast about what happened around the movie, but 
I don't want to get into all of it, but the short version is, unfortunately, while having this hugely fantastic <laughs> moment, you also, when they greenlit the movie, they also moved on to a different writer. You can say fired, it's fine. Okay, so in the phone call where they greenlit the movie, they also fired you. <laughs> so you've got this amazing movie. So every time somebody says, oh, it's, you know, this is Grant, he wrote The Maze Run. They're like, oh, that's amazing. The obvious next questions would be like, oh, wow, what was it like on, on set? And, you know, what was, what was Albie like and so on? But I guess you missed that part of it. Uh, yeah, I, I, I never got to go on set. Um, and, and it really, 90% of the time, ni- almost 99% of the time, a screenwriter doesn't have much to do on set. I mean, you've written the script, obviously, and that's why you're all there. You know, the screenwriter's there in case there's some small snafu where, oh, it turns out that your lead actor, you know, can't say a particular word without swallowing it whole. Um, or they were going to shoot this one part at night, uh, but now they can't. So can you rewrite it quickly so it's a daytime scene where someone goes, oh, look at this beautiful sunrise instead of sunset. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I didn't miss out on anything there. Um, oh, you do get a everyone knows like that, that classic director chair, you know, the kind of the wood and fabric chair. I didn't get the chair with the movie title and my name on it. Um, you only get that if you go to set. That's a bummer. Um, but uh, <laughs> that, that's a, even if it's not a lot to do on set, like you say, it's just sort of unlikely you need to do anything, but you might do stuff. But if you were still attached to the movie, is part of the sort of perk of the job that you just get to hang around on set a bit or? Oh yeah. They're they're obligated to get you down there at least once to, you know, to hang out and hobnob and and be a part of it. Um, Actually the real bummer with Maze Runner was that there was no premiere. Um, Cause when you think, you know, obviously when you think big Hollywood movie, you think, Oh, you know, you're going to walk the red carpet and pack a theater full of people and the big lights in the sky. And when they released the movie, Fox thought, a better use of the premiere money was to do this kind of TV special where they had like three teenagers actually run through a maze trying and whoever got out first was going to win a car. Um, They saw that as better promotion than like, Oh, here's photos of, you know, the movie stars at the maze runner premiere. Um, I, I have no idea if they were right or wrong, but I remember watching that special on TV live and just complaining the whole time. Like I should be wearing a tux right now. Yeah. So I guess this was going to be, so I didn't realize there'd be no premiere. Had there been a traditional premiere, would you have been invited? Yes, they would have had to. There's, there's all these fun, you know, I mean, look, writers are no different from anyone else. And when it comes to a contract, you know, our contracts are huge and long and full of all sorts of crazy stuff. Most of which doesn't matter. But one of those things is you're guaranteed a ticket to the premiere. I'm all, by the way, every writer is guaranteed one DVD of their movie. Like, oh. <laughs> like as weird as that is. DVD or Blu-ray or both? Just- I'm not sure if it's been updated. I was, I got one DVD. Um, but, but so, yeah, I, I have to be invited to the premiere. And also, I mean, even if that wasn't contractual, I think that'd be a pretty big, you know, middle finger to anybody to be like, yeah, you worked on it. But, well, I say that, and then you know, I'm pretty sure no one who did the lighting ended up at, the, at a premiere. But um, <laughs> I mean, a, a premiere is basically—I think a premiere is basically a party to celebrate the fact that you that you did this extraordinary thing. Mm. Because 
making movies is a big deal. Um, when you look at the time and the number of people and the money involved in it, it's one of those, those feats that when you look at it from 10,000 feet, you go, this shouldn't even be possible. Um, the, the amount of coordination amongst all these people to get this one vision on screen, it, it, it's Herculean to put all that together. Mm. And to me, that's what a premiere is. It's appreciating the fact that we started this and we finished it and here we go. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're, if you're out and about, let's say life was normal and you were in LA and you were, a, you were hanging out at a Soho house with all the execs and so on, and you bump into, you bump into one of the actors let's say. Um, I think they should all be old enough to drink by now. Um, so let's say you bump into them and you'd be like, oh, Matron. And they'd be like, yeah, I was I was good in it, wasn't I? I'm like, yeah, I, I'm Grant. And they're like, okay, hi, Grant. Nice to meet you. Do you want an autograph? Do, do they know that you wrote it, as it were? Has that, Have you ever had that problem? I've never had that, but a friend of mine was out hobnobbing probably at the Soho house and bumped into Dylan O'Brien, the star of the movie. And he said to him, oh, hey, my good friend wrote Maze Runner. And Dylan said, oh, you know, this other writer who'd worked on it. He goes, no, Grant Myers. And he goes, who? <laughs> and part of that's like, dude, you didn't sit through the credits of your own movie. Yeah. Like, my name is on there. <laughs> Strange. Extraordinary world. So, look, I'm going to completely change the subject, if I may. Actually, no, I'll go back and ask it. This is nothing to do with Major Runner. I want to go back to the whiskey thing. Yeah. So, which... Do you have, like, can you remember which whiskeys were linked to which movies? In the way that, as you told the story before, like, the reason you buy your wife something, apart from the fact that it's a family endeavor, is so you can, you know, she'll wear a piece of jewelry when you go out and you'll be like, oh, do you remember this one? This was the Warner Brother projects and so on. Do you remember which whiskeys attached to which movies? Sadly, I don't, which is very odd for me. I'm, I'm a ridiculously sentimental person. Um, I have this collection of hundreds of wine bottle corks um, that I, they're all in individual bags with a label of what we did when we drank that wine, you know? So like I have every, I have every cork from every anniversary my wife and I have celebrated, you know, again, there's hundreds of them. And for some reason I didn't keep the whiskey bottles that I bought. Um, I can tell you that most of them were high West because uh, uh, my career picked up right around the time that, uh, I, that I discovered High West, and that's probably one of my other favorite distilleries. Mm. Um, I do know that the Portwood uh, Balvaney uh, I bought for a project that Warner Brothers hired me on. Okay. Um, and, that, and, I, and the reason that was so special, it was um, the first time that, uh, it was the first time since Maze Runner that a major brand name studio had hired me. Okay. Um, I, I mean, and 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 because there's some, I mean, there's there's a hundred different ways you can get paid in this town. But when one of those companies who you've seen their logo for your entire life hires you, it's it's kind of a different level, and that one required something special. Right. So I'm going to change the subject a bit. So I asked, I had a screenwriter on here in April of last year, just as the pandemic started. He's a TV writer. And I asked him if he was pitching coronavirus as a potential TV series. Would, it, would any exec take it seriously? We had an interesting conversation about that. So the forwarding on a year, as a film writer, if you had to pitch 
a movie about the way American politics has played out in the last five years. How would you pitch that? And do you think anyone would even believe any of this could be true? I mean, the first answer is I wouldn't pitch it because the way this has played out is so bizarre that I, I wouldn't even bother trying to go down that road. Um, you know, screenwriters always joke about, oh, you know, if I pitched this at the studio, they'd say, get the hell out of my office. Um, and that's extremely true. I mean, think about think about the movies that have been made in the past about pandemics. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the two big ones that come to mind are Contagion and Outbreak. Um, and in, in Contagion, especially, one of the big elements of that movie is that the federal government's incredibly co- uh, competent. Um, so if I were to say, okay, let's do Contagion, except the government's a mess. I, I don't know who would believe it a year ago. Because you can't have two uh, unlikely things happening at the same time in a movie. It doesn't, it's too complicated for the audience. It, well, I mean, that from a technical standpoint, yes, but also just from the standpoint of whoever I'm pitching it to would be like, wait, you really expect me to believe that behind closed doors, people are like, eh, you know, maybe we just let people get sick. Um, you're right. It is kind of a hat on a hat where it's like, so wait a minute. I thought I was going to a pandemic movie, but it turns out I'm going to a crazy government movie. Yeah. Um, and then and then you could be like, oh, well, and, and then it turns out I went to an insurrection movie. I mean, like it, it, we, we, screenwriters try so hard to come up with original ideas um, that are well thought out to the point where, you know, when you pitch it, someone goes, OK, that's that's really compelling. But also, I believe every part of it. And 2020 just completely subverted all of that. Yeah. And this is the thing, it does feel like, because obviously Maze Runner is a dystopian movie (laughs) and all the things that happen almost feel more dystopian than the dystopian movies. It's funny. When I think about 2020, I think about it less as a pandemic or dystopian movie and more about a political thriller. Mm. You know, movies like Three Days of the Condor come to mind um, because it it, it it feels like all of these things are just side stories of the craziness that's going on. Mm. Um, there's a great old novel called uh, I think it's Night at Camp David, uh, where uh, the president goes down to Camp David and one of his advisors is hanging out with him at night and he realizes the president's insane, like literally insane. Mm. And he's every night he's figuring out, oh, my God, how can I, how can I save the country from this insane man? Um, that's I mean, the definitive work, uh, you know, a screenplay book, whatever of the Trump uh, era feels like it's going to be a stage play in the vein of Frost Nixon. You mm. know, it's 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 going to be <clears throat> OK. This is the this is the stage play that takes place 90 minutes before Trump uh, officially leaves office on Inauguration Day for Biden. Mm. You know, it's it's the conversation that Trump has with whatever person is in the room for the last hour that he's president. Mm. Um, at least that's, I mean, that's what I would do because <laughs> everything else is just too big. Yeah. Even, even if you did a, a, a 10 season miniseries, how could you handle all this? Again, a year ago, we used to say like, Oh, I guess we're at this point in the movie about the Trump administration. Mm. And then slowly we're all like, well, actually we're on this episode of the first season of, of a miniseries. Now we're on this episode of season one, and now it's just like, well, okay, well, <laughs> we're basically doing Doctor Who. There's going to have to be so many seasons. So if, if somebody's optioned Night at Camp David, presumably that film is unmakeable now because 
it sort of it, it sort of happened a bit, and therefore that I actually think that might be one of the few things you could make hmm. because it's such a specific idea, and now that we've seen it's somewhat possible that that might be you know you might be able to do it that way um the stuff that i think is going to be tough to pull off is like i don't think you could make air force one today yeah so that's it i was going to say because sometimes events ruin movies i mean there's loads of examples of movies which had to be delayed when they were coming out because you know it was about a sniper and then there's been a sniper you know there's been very specific examples of that and you know san andreas presumably they spent the whole of the warm-up time for that thinking if there's an actual earthquake we can't put the movie out but yeah, you're sort of White House down, Air Force One, Angel Has Fallen. All that stuff just feels like you can't... And actually, obviously, and also Outbreak and Contagion again. Those movies just... You can't do that now for, for uh, years, if ever. Speaking from personal experience, I was just finishing up a script about a pandemic when this all went down. Um. I mean, I mean, I, 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 I wrote this kind of a small family drama that takes it's 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 you know two parents and a child, and it takes place six months after a horrible pandemic has just decimated the country, and they're trying to go from point A to point B to find a safe home, uh, and I, I finished it in let's say April, maybe June. Um, and the minute I did, I was like, no one's going to want this for years. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it just, it's, it's, it's too close to home. Like. Yeah. So also, what do you do now? I've seen about pandemic related contemporary scenes. So the new seasons of some of the procedural TV shows have come out recently. And George Floyd is referenced people are wearing masks and there's plexiglass in courthouses for the traditional sort of grand jury scenes and so on. And that, I guess that's right for these very specific contemporary procedurals. But if you're writing, obviously if you're writing another maze runner, then you don't have to care about any of this stuff because it's a, you know, it's a dystopian world. But if you're writing a normal movie, which is just meant to be set in a normal place, do you stuff everyone in masks and have plexiglass and social distancing? Or do you pretend it doesn't happen because it well, it sort of is a distraction from your storytelling? And also people maybe just don't want to see it on screen. I think it's it's very dependent on does it is it crucial to the story that the story takes place during the pandemic? Yeah. Um, so you know, if you were doing, uh, let's say you were trying to do like a Kramer versus Kramer or a few good men, but it really mattered that it happened in 2020 because the complications arising from social distancing and wearing masks and how many people can be where, uh, were, were seriously impacting the events then yes. But other stuff that I'm working on personally that takes place today, quote unquote, I'm not writing in masks or social distancing because i'm hoping and assuming maybe naively that by the time i take that piece out we'll be beyond this yeah um and you and you don't want to write a whole thing that you know oh everyone's six feet apart and everyone's got a mask on da, 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 and and then take it out when when everyone's vaccinated and be like 
well, that worked a year ago. I think what's going to get interesting is when we start to do kind of true stories and biopics based in the last 18 months, Mm -hmm. Um, because you will have to show that, you know, I mean, come on, at some point there's going to be an Anthony Fauci miniseries. There's, I mean, I'm sure there's gonna be endless Oliver Stone type Trump movies Mm -hmm. um, and you'll have to do it for those. Um, And then again, like if you're doing a fictional story set in 2020, you'd be choosing to tell that story in 2020, I think, because you want to draw on the coronavirus elements. Yeah. Um, Like if, I mean, you know, what is, it's actually a fun exercise. Like what's when Harry met Sally, if they met in 2020. Yeah. You know, like what, what if, I mean, obviously they're not going to get in a car and drive somewhere together. Mm. Um, But you know, what's, what's pretty woman in 2020. Um, Obviously no kissing, but that's the same in pretty woman. Um, (laughs) Yes, indeed. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Um, so somebody put this hilarious thing on at Christmas. I think they were a writer. They put on Twitter something about, you know, why has nobody written the love story about a Jewish widow falling for a, the owner of a Chinese restaurant? Because there's this whole thing about Jewish people eat Chinese food on Christmas Day. And so there was this whole thing. And there's this thousands of people piled into this thread about what a great idea it was. And obviously throwing the pandemic and the restaurant couldn't open. She had nowhere to go and so on and so off. And, you know, that's sort of, that's a movie I'd watch, I think. I would absolutely watch that. And to me, that's, it. that, that, actually, that should be a movie because it passes the simple test of when you hear someone pitch it like that, do you slap your forehead and go, yeah, of course. Um, and you do. Um, like that, that, the forehead slapping test is what I use for everything. Um, is that, is that a real, do, they, do they teach you that at screenwriting school? It, it, oh, God, no. Um, that's something you learn after you've been pounding your head on your own desk for years. And because every time you open up, well, we don't open them up anymore. The, the trade magazines aren't actually magazines. But every time you go online and, and see what just sold, you know, some of the stuff you just slap your forehead and go, of course. Like, and as a writer, do you, particularly because obviously for every movie you make, there's you that don't get made. And for every script you write, there's probably a hundred nearly ideas that you couldn't quite work out how to turn them out. When, when you see a movie being greenlit or you read about it and you, you know, you read the, you read the log line, I think you call it. Do you think ah, that's what I was trying to, do or yes i could have done a version of that is it not jealousy as much but the the sort of equivalent of you know somebody orders a nicer looking meal than you at a restaurant and you you get a bit of food envy uh i mean speaking from personal experience i suffer from incredible project envy um i have to i have to avoid reading the trades every day because i my whole day can be derailed if i read that you know, this just got set up and I'll be like, oh my God, that's such a good idea. Why didn't I think of it? And then I'm done for the day. Um, yeah, there's an enormous amount of that. Um, I have, I have personally experienced the thing where, you know, you come up with this idea and you're like, oh my God, this is brilliant. And then I'll pitch it to my agent. He's like, oh, there's like 10 of those. And you're like, how I'm so brilliant. I came up with this and he's like, Oh yeah, there's 10 of them. And like Fox bought one, Warner brothers bought. One. I mean, this why it's why I don't take serious anyone who claims that Hollywood ripped off my idea, you know, like, Oh, S- Steven Spielberg overheard me in a diner and he, he made this movie. Like, no, I don't care how smart or brilliant you are. 
50 people had the same idea as you. That's interesting because there is a lot of that that goes around and there's a whole sort of don't tell people your idea because someone will steal it and so on. But as you say, there is a good chance that somebody else just had the same idea and it might have been inspired by the same thing maybe. You know, you see a, you read a book or a TV show or see something happen in the news and think, you know, I could turn this into something else and 10 other people thought of the same clever trick. Exactly. Um, I mean, and, and you can even look at movies that have been made and see this. I mean, like Armageddon and Deep Impact came out, what, two months apart? Mm. You know, I mean, it, it, it. the movies that are really special are the ones where someone comes up with something that no one else got close to, or at least that no one else thought of quick enough to beat them to it. Have you had projects where you've got caught up in a sort of you stole my idea situation where you've written something and then there's some somebody chasing you saying, well, I, didn't I tell you that or that was my idea? Uh, I was party to the lawsuit on Maze Runner when someone sued the sued Fox and said, you stole my idea. Really? I yeah. Just, I didn't know that was a thing. So, But that was based from a book. So somebody claiming that the book author stole the idea. I, I, it's funny. I don't remember all the details of the lawsuit. I just remember I was uh, on third street promenade with my wife eating at Barney's beanery. And I got an email uh, from my lawyer saying, Oh, Hey, no big deal. You're being sued along with every writer and everyone involved in making maze runner. Cause this, I think, I don't even remember where the guy was from. This guy says that he, he wrote maze runner uh, and it was all stolen from him. And I remember emailing back like okay so i don't need to be worried he's like no almost every movie has a lawsuit like this is that right okay um i mean don't quote me on that but it but enough movies have a lawsuit like this that no one batted an eye yeah because presumably on that one more so than usual the response is you know thanks lawyer for this email but maybe go back to the person who actually wrote the book because at the end of the day you have you know, legally, obviously, because someone's bought the rights, but you're adapting his book into a movie, not coming up with the maze itself. So, I, yeah, I mean, I don't remember how. I'm, I'm sure the law. I'm, I'm sure the lawsuit differentiated between ideas in the book and ideas in the film. But, um, but I mean, it's not a surprise that once something becomes a movie, those things happen because our society is kind of sets you know oh they made a movie about it as this bar mm. and you know you know that an event or a book or anything else is significant if someone bought it and wanted to turn it into a tv show or a movie yeah um as bizarre as that is because you know there's so many events that happen you're like that's extraordinary on its own i don't need to see the miniseries mm. yeah also presumably if there's 380 something million dollars as box office receipts, then somebody thinks that it's worth, like if that film was a flop and had made no money, they might have not chased quite as hard. I I have no evidence to back this up, but I bet there's a direct correlation between how successful the movie is and how many lawsuits are filed that someone's idea got stolen. Yeah. So just on a sort of success point related to the, the, the major on the movie. So you did the first one, cost about 30, made about 380 something. Second one, which obviously you didn't write, cost about 60, made less than 380. Third one cost about 60, made 200 and something. So I guess 
4x profit is still not to be sniffed at from a studio point of view. So, you know, people are getting paid out. But the fact that they were less successful in a direct monetary sense, is there a bit of, from your point of view, well, you know, I was involved in the first one, which was the best one, and therefore I'm very pleased with myself around that? Or do, did you not even know those numbers and you don't care? Uh, I would love to think that my genius is what made the first one so successful, but no. Um, there's far too many people that work on a film for one person to really be the reason it succeeds. Um, the exceptions being with a, a few directors and maybe Derek Kolstad, the screenwriter. Um, what I think... I mean, I knew all those numbers just because if you pay any attention in, in town, you know numbers like that. And what I think Maze Runner's sequel suffered from was just YA fatigue. Um, you know, uh, the Divergent series had the same kind of drop off. Okay. Um, and really, you know, after the Hunger Games, there was this gold rush. Every studio wanted their YA franchise and most of them got one. Uh, and then, you know, we kind of overtaxed the audience and that was it. And by the time the final ones were coming out, the audience was like, eh. Okay. So actually, I, I, I'm fascinated by this because I've seen this play out in different ways. So I used to be a journalist, a news reporter in my first career. And every so often, like, I'd write a really good story. Obviously, it was it was news story, so it's slightly different. But I was a sports reporter for a few years. And I remember one, I wrote this one intro to a, a, a report on a rugby match. And it was genius, if I say so myself. And I remember people... Like people commented about it, and I, the internet hadn't been invented then, so I couldn't see what Twitter would have said. But like, I'd be in, I'd be, I was I remember being in a, I was out for lunch somewhere, and somebody was reading the story, and like, oh, that's clever. And I was sort of, I took some pride from that. And then, you know, fast forward a few years, our mutual friend Noah, who I do the other podcast with, when he was on Hawaii Five O, the episodes that he specifically wrote, we'd go around and have a watch party with him. And we'd be watching it. And obviously his name comes up on the screen. That's exciting. But there would be one line in the movie, which he obviously, sorry, in the TV show, which he knew was coming. And he almost sort of wet himself when the actor said it. And it was good. He was excited because he was pleased with something. So obviously Maze Runner is based on a book. So you can't sit there and go, wow, look at that maze. That was my idea. But when you're, when you're watching the movie, the first time maybe with your family was there one particular piece of dialogue or one thing where when it you know you know it's coming and then it comes and you sort of nudge your wife and say this is this bit's really good uh yes and i know exactly the line and i know where i was when i wrote it and i know how i felt when i heard it in the theater um it's so before i had a kid i used to i had a weird kind of working schedule where I would usually start working in the morning and, and I could write action really well in the morning, but I wrote dialogue really well at night. And I remember the night I'm working on Maze Runner and I, we needed this tiny little bit of exposition to explain all the different ways these, these kids had tried to escape. Um, because obviously the, the audience is thinking, why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do this? And so the main character says, have you tried this? Have you tried this? Have you tried this? And they tell him how all the things didn't work. And he finally goes, have you tried? And, um, uh, one of the characters says, we tried it twice without knowing what he was going to say. Yeah. And I remember writing that line that's not in the book and thinking, oh, that's a good line. 
And it's probably an okay line. But I was really proud of that one. I remember that bit. The 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 kid from About a Boy says Yeah, it. Thomas Brody Sanctuary. Yeah. Yeah, we tried it twice, you know. That's my bad accent. Well, so and then I, you know, I I went to a test screening and I was waiting for that line because I loved it. And we got to it. And in my opinion, he says it too fast. And I think I think it steps on the effectiveness of the line just a little bit. I wrote it as we tried it with a pause twice. And he says it more as one sentence. We tried it twice. Um, and I remember being so disappointed. And again, it's the most meaningless throwaway line. But in my head, it sounded one way and he did it another way. And I was like, ah, so close. So did you did you email him and say, yeah, I'm very disappointed. You young British actors just don't know how to read the pauses. Um, boy, there's a lot to unpack in that question. One, I didn't have his email address. Two, I would not have sent that email. And three, I would never, ever criticize a British actor for, for his skills because they're so much better than American actors. <laughs> I forgot, because obviously Albie's British as well. Yeah, yeah, Albie's British, um, Thomas Brody Sangster, like you mentioned. By the way, there was a great meme that went around years ago when uh, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry got married where they did the how it started, how it how it ended. Yeah. And it was a picture of from uh, Love Actually of, of Thomas Brody Sangster, the kid who plays the drums and the young woman who sings the song he has a crush on. And 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 because and then like, oh, look, that's what Harry and Meghan Markle kind of look like today. And I really want someone to do a version of that where it's like how it started that picture, how it ended. And it's like dystopian 2021 with him in the maze. And I don't know what you'd do for her. But I mean. Amazing. This is, look, this has been brilliant. And I would like to keep going, but that's not what my audience signed up for. So we're going to have to, we have to move on to the last question. And I'm excited by this because you're a creative and you've listened to the podcast. So I think you know what the, question is going to be but if you could drink any whiskey with anyone dead or alive what would it be who would it be and where would it be so it would be with ernest hemingway hmm. well hold on there's i mean i'm gonna be an asshole and have two versions of this question there's there's sorry like the the, the big one is it would be with ernest hemingway it would be on the boat that the government gave him during world war ii to keep him busy um, and it would be whatever he wanted because his taste is better than mine. But then the sentimental part of me is like, well, it would be a grandfather and it would be anywhere, anytime, uh, and whatever they wanted. Okay. That's a classic movie writing two different endings and see which one the studio prefers. Well, by the way, it's classic writer because it's such a fun question. Mm. I mean, you, I mean, there's, there's, the creative part of me just goes nuts with that, you know? Um, I mean, hell, it would. It, I, I wrote a script about Elliot Ness years ago. It would be a hell of a lot of fun to have a glass of whiskey with Elliot Ness the day they repealed Prohibition. Mm. Um, likewise, it would have been had a, a ton of fun to have a glass of whiskey with Al Capone anytime during Prohibition because he probably had the best stuff. Um, there's a dozen presidents that I would love to drink with, you know? 
Um, hell, one of my favorite people in the whole world is Rachel Maddow. And again, I would trust her to pick whatever she wants to drink. Um, so yeah, that, it, that to me is not so much a question so much as a springboard into two hours of just wonderful daydreaming. Yeah. So interesting. So the Hemingway thing is interesting. I remember, because I've got this thing, you know how you say that you've kept the, you've kept the wine corks. So I don't keep things necessarily, but I've got great memory for drinks and who I drank them with. And this is one of the things I like about whiskey. It doesn't really apply with beer, but with whiskey, I can, I can almost name the person and the location when I had a certain whiskey. But one of the most memorable cocktails I had was when I was in just leaving London to move to Bermuda and a big leaving party. And a few of us went out in London and we went to the Savoy hotel in London. And one of my friends ordered this cocktail and it was a Hemingway themed cocktail. And it was about 40 pounds, which is you know sort of 60 odd dollars, which is particularly at the time, because we were in our twenties at that point, it was expensive. And um, anyway, he ordered this cocktail and it was brilliant. It was, it comes with, so it was a co- and I can't remember the cocktail, but what I can remember, it came with a book, like literally like gives you a book and a cigar. It just, that's part of what you order is the book, the book and the cigar comes with the drink. So, uh, so there you go. And uh, that was very memorable. It like. Indulge me to tell you one tiny cocktail story. Of course. Um, it is, it is not whiskey, but it is, it is worth it. So um, my wife and I honeymooned uh, at the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island. And uh, I mean, if you've never been there, this, this hotel is just this throwback to 200 years ago. Um, you have to be jacket and tie, you know, after 6 p.m. Um, it's this huge, beautiful, form, formal dining room. They've got six bars. It's, it's a ton of fun. Um, and we were sitting in the library bar and looking at the cocktail menu. And they had a cocktail called uh, the Grand Celebration that was $12 and a cocktail called the Grand Anniversary, which was $120. And the difference was they were both champagne cocktails. And the difference was in the $120 one, they added this kind of elite Grand Marnier and they added this Napoleon brandy to it. (laughs) And we finally decided, okay, we got to try that. And they don't just mix it in the back and bring it out. There is a performance. And again, we're on our honeymoon. We're like, let's do something special. Like two people with white gloves come out and open a special liquor cabinet and pull out these special bottles and mix. And like people are gathering all around to watch this. Um, And I'd already had one of the cheap ones. And for the life of me, I couldn't tell the difference between the two once we got it. But it was the experience of watching them make it was so spectacular. It's, I'm going to now indulge you with two stories. So one of my favorite whiskey bars is in Liverpool. And I'm assuming it's still open post-pandemic, although you just don't know. But it's called the Puffin Rooms. And it's got a cigar lounge on one side, but it's a whiskey bar. But they really do it properly. They've got an incredible whiskey selection. But when you order a whiskey, they bring the full bottle to your table. If there's a branded glass that's appropriate, they'll use that. And they pour it out. And it's that's the difference that you remember. But the, the similar performance thing I remember was when we lived in Bermuda. I think the most expensive restaurant in Bermuda, or at least the most expensive one I ever went to, was called the Newport Rooms. And it was an incredible sort of nautical-themed place. And so waiters wore white gloves. And when they brought your dishes, it had the silver 
platter and all that the stuff. The cloche cover, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was extraordinary. But if you ordered an Irish coffee there, there was this whole performance. And I ordered it every time I went. And it probably cost 30 bucks for an Irish coffee. But the reason I ordered it was a whole performance. They, I think, I feel like in my head they turn the lights off, but maybe they don't. But it was, <laughs> there was, you know, they come, there's gloves, there's about four of them. There's fire. They they start setting fire to things, the whiskey, and they they pour it up in the air and they throw it here and they throw it there and they finally pour it into your glass and then the flames extinct, the blue flame extinguishes and then you're left with a very expensive Irish coffee and some nice pictures. But you know you pay for it because you want to remember it. And I you know I only went there three times and every time I had the Irish coffee just for the fame, just for the fire. And I feel like I would. You know, $120 for a cocktail is is something that, you know, your wallet will remember. But, you know, if there's a performance, then it's worth every penny. Exactly. Yeah. that's You're not paying for the drink. You're paying for the experience. Yeah. And talking of paying for the experience, I am honored to have you had you on the podcast. This has been brilliant. And it's free for our listeners to get to hear Grant Pierce Myers tell his brilliant stories about whiskey and the maze runner and life in Hollywood and how we would pitch the Trump movie. So thank you very much indeed, Grant. This has been as good as I hoped it would be. So thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for having me and, uh, you know, cheers on the next one you pour after this. Absolutely. And whenever life returns to normal and you're back in Los Angeles, I know you love Soho house. So I'll be taking you there and we can have a, a whiskey there together and then maybe go to Vegas and gamble afterwards, because I know that's something else you enjoy. Uh, it is, but your gambling scares the hell out of me. So maybe we'll just do a whiskey tasting. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Grant. Thanks. Mm, I love scotch. 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 Yep. And don't forget to not just follow us on twitter and instagram at us of dramerica but also ask us questions and comment and say nice things and please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and if the mood takes you you can leave us a review as uh, feedback is always welcome and drink whiskey slonchevar <laughs>